The following is a special sports presentation of UltimateSportsTalk.com. A swing and a drive to deep right, away back, goal! <laughs> UltimateSportsTalk.com now presents the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show, an in-depth look at the Cincinnati Reds and the Cleveland Indians. For the fifth consecutive year, we examine the teams and their progress throughout the baseball season. And now, the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Hello again, everyone, and good evening. Welcome to another edition of the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. I'm Dave Mitchell. And this evening, we're going to sit back and take a look at the exploits during the third week of spring training for the Cincinnati Reds and the Cleveland Indians. And, of course, in order to do that, especially as far as the Reds are concerned, we've got to bring in our resident Reds expert and movie producer, Mark Donahue. Mark, good evening. How are you tonight? Uh, Pretty good, Dave. And I I think uh, in terms of spring training, my goal for the Reds in spring training every year is to play 500. And if they can do that, I think we're off to a good start. I'm always leery of a team that, you know, has a tremendous spring training and sets themselves up for some failure during the regular season. But uh, the Reds are hanging in there. They even got a couple ties. So uh, uh, I'm okay with what's going on so far with the Reds. How about you and the Indians? Well, you know what's funny is that you and I really don't discuss beforehand what we are going to talk about as the show progresses, and and you just took the words right out of my mouth, Mark, as far as what the records are concerned, I could care less as far as what the Reds and the Indians do during spring training. What I care about is seeing the young kids, seeing the veterans develop and get ready for the baseball season, and that's really the things that, that I care about. And as far as the Indians are concerned, one of the main things that I think I've been concerned about is seeing Francisco Lindor play, And I've been very happy with what I've seen happen so far. We'll get into that here in just a little bit. And just how the defense is going to be this year for the Indians. And that's another thing that I have been very pleased with, what they've done with the gloves so far. But before we get into all of that, I want to lead off with what happened on Wednesday as far as what Will Ferrell did for the Cancer (laughs) Society and Major League Baseball. In case you didn't know, Will Ferrell played on 10 teams on Major League Baseball on Wednesday. He started out playing shortstop with the Oakland A's in Mesa, and then he ended up everything about eight hours later with him playing right field for the San Diego Padres. He even coached third base for a lot of the clubs and used basic signs (laughs) to give signs while he was at third base, coaching third base. He only got to bat twice, Mark. He batted twice and struck out on six pitches, three three pitches each. But nonetheless, what this guy did was just not only was it fun, it drew a lot of attention to the Cancer Society and drew a lot of attention to Major League Baseball. Yeah, it's amazing that he was out there for 10 innings. That means he had 30 outs to uh, to negotiate, and he only got one ground ball to him in center field, <laughs> a ground ball that he threw back in. I don't know how the ball avoided him that many that many outs, but uh, that was a great thing, and uh, of course, uh, that has been done at the major league level before. Campy Campaneris did it, and I think one other player did it uh, during the regular season. But uh, Will Ferrell is one of my favorite uh, comedians and actors, actually, for that matter. And uh, you know what was fun? What was fun about this, Mark, was that he made a joke of it outside the lines, but inside the lines, at least at what I saw. It appeared that he took it as seriously as he could. As a matter of fact, he, he looked at uh, at the red shortstop at the time, and I forget who it was when he was playing third base for the Reds that day, but he was trying to get pointers on where to play each batter and, and what he was supposed to do, especially during the switch that the Reds employed at one point where they put the shortstop behind second base. Yeah, you know, the other thing about playing third base, now I don't know if the opposing teams when he was at third or even at first uh, they kind of kept the ball away from him. But you get a, a line drive pulled to you at third base and it hits about a f- foot in front of you, that's no joke. <laughs> that, that, that can ruin your day. Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, I, I assume that the players did not want to try and pull the ball and, and take, off his, uh, take out a lung or something. But 
th- that was a great event, and I was glad to see Major League Baseball not take itself so seriously and not let that happen. And they're to be commended. And I don't know if this is a result of the new commissioner. I, I would assume Bud Seeley would have done something like this. But there was a time baseball would not have done something like this. And I, I think mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a move in the right direction that they are. You know, the thing that got me, Mark, and I haven't been able to find out who he did it with, who did he catch? When, when did he play catcher and who was that with? That's a good question. I didn't see that. I didn't either, but they said he played all nine positions. But, you know, that would have to – I did see him pitch for the Dodgers, and that was hilarious when he took the mound. Charlie Steiner was doing the game, and one of the things that he said, and, and when you saw it on the film clip – it was, it was amazing. There were so many photographers surrounding the mound. There was at least 20 photographers surrounding the mound. I'm surprised he even got a warm-up pitch off. <laughs> well, again, it, I, I think the the players are to be commended for not uh, taking his head off of the line drive, which they can do. But, uh, you know, Will Farrell seeing him play, <laughs> his, I don't mean to segue into this, but that's precisely why we are trying to get real players in our movie. <laughs> we don't want actors who can't play. So and it, it's pretty apparent when you see someone who doesn't play compared to a major league player, even a triple-A or double-A player, you can tell they're professional. And people forget, people at the, at the triple-A level and double-A level, these are professional athletes, professional baseball players, and even at double-A, some of the best baseball players in the world. So you, you can really tell the difference when you, when you don't have a pro out there. And the funny thing was when he he addressed the crowd at Camelback Stadium, the Dodgers Stadium, and talked to them and thanked them for the entire day and and what happened. But when he said, it's nice to see that an American can come out and be surrounded by eight Dominican players and still play the game of baseball. (laughs) That's, you know, what's really amazing about major league baseball today is is the obviously the influx of latin players not just dominican but all over latin america uh and how many black players are playing major league baseball not the last i heard about a year ago i think it was only eight percent of all major league players were afro-american african-american and it's that is amazing number to me and I think Major League Baseball has a real challenge over the next decade to get back into the inner city, get young athletes playing baseball, and not just basketball and football. And to do that, you have to build facilities. And Major League Baseball has been very remiss in that. And they're missing out on a tremendous amount of talent. And as Cuba opens up and sends players seemingly almost weekly to the major leagues, it's unfortunate that Major League Baseball has not looked internally in this country to develop uh, the African-American athlete. No, you're absolutely right. I, I agree 100%. Well, we're here to talk about the Reds and the Indians. Enough about Will Ferrell right now, but let's get into what has happened this week with the Cincinnati Reds. Mark, the, the thing that I saw earlier this week and I was rather surprised about was the fact that the Reds sent Robert Stevenson down to the minor leagues so quickly, not even giving him an extra week or two to try to work himself into that rotation. Why did they pull the trigger on him so quickly? Well, it was very clear, I think, to everybody that the Reds, their strongest asset right now is pitching. And he was not going to get uh, an opportunity to, to throw during spring training. And the Reds have to find out who among those that they did trade for this year, who can help them at the major league level? So I don't think they wanted to take innings away from the guys who are clearly going to be on the roster, both in the bullpen and the starting rotation. And it it seems to me, Stevenson, I don't want to say he was overhyped, but David, if if you look at his minor league, if you didn't put a name next to it and just looked at his statistics in the minor leagues, this guy looks like a run of the mill pitcher. Now, I'm not saying he's going to be that way, but at some point you have to wonder, what are we missing here in terms of this guy who's now, what, 22 years old uh, and, and should be, you know, approaching his young prime? And if he's not ready now, when's he going to be ready? 
No, you're 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 right there. What what about some of the other players that they sent down, Mark? Any surprises so far in what the Reds have done? No, I, I don't think so. They, they they have, I think they have their the, one of the most talented rosters they've had for a while in terms of depth, and that came about because of all the injuries last year. That I think they strengthened their their bench significantly, but uh, I, I'm not as upset about the the starting pitching and and the bullpen, I, I think it's pretty solid. What I'm really concerned about is the offense again. <clears throat> it's been five years we've been talking about this. And if Jay Bruce does not hit, if, if Zach Cozart hits 210 again, this team's in fifth place by a wide margin. And I don't mean a couple games. I mean they could be they could be buried in the central by by the All-Star break because I don't care if you have the best pitching in the league and the Reds I think have some damn good pitching it's just that you, if you only score one or two runs a game you're not going to win well and I know I've said this over past years but I remember I don't remember it but my father telling me about the 68 Indians which were probably in a worse situation offensively than the Reds are this year, but Louis Tiant always used to say, if I give up one run, we tie. If I give up two runs, we lose. Yeah, and that's that's true. And that, that, that if I recall, they had Sam McDowell on that staff as well. Yes. Uh, they had some pretty good pitching on that staff. And, you know, the Reds, East, last year was so frustrating for Reds fans because you had Cueto and Lados and Bailey, and they'd go out there and pitch – you know, seven innings, give up two runs and five hits, and be behind, and that that's that wears on a, a team and it wears in a bullpen. And they had no bench last year, and of course, we don't have to recount all the injuries they had last year. But I'll tell you, Jay Bruce, he's he's the linchpin of this of this thing. And if he doesn't hit, and if you know, again, if Cozart comes up with the numbers he had last year, you've got three automatic outs in that on that lineup. You can't win that way, Dave. Well, there are three players that I want to go over with you here in just a moment with the Reds, but let's skip over to the Indians right now, where the big story this week, besides the fact of the way Lindor is playing, and I'll get to him in a second, was the Nick Swisher meltdown on Friday with Terry Francona. As everyone knows, Nick Swisher is coming back from knee surgery on both knees, and he is... Not upset at the organization, not upset at Terry Francona, but he's upset with his own body that his knees are not ready to play this early in spring training, and the Indians have yet to clear him to go out and play. Now, we talked a little bit about this last week, Mark. When you come back from one knee surgery, it's traumatic enough to try to get back in the lineup and play. But when you're coming back from knee surgeries on both knees, I'm not sure exactly what Nick Swisher expected, but to go into a meltdown mode over the fact that he's not ready to go just three weeks into spring training and three weeks away from opening day, I think is a little off the wall. Yeah, and at the same time, being an athlete, you can you can understand uh, the frustration that they have. Uh, you would think that with a winter to to rehab, you you would be ready. And when you're not, I can understand where it's frustrating. But uh, I'd rather have a guy be frustrated that he can't play than a guy who doesn't care and isn't fighting to get back in the lineup. So uh, I wouldn't hold that against him. Uh, and since he's an Indian, I'm, I, I'm certainly not going to hold it against him. <laughs> well, another thing that I wanted to bring up was the fact that for the second straight year, <clears throat> the Indians have made a free agent signee out of a pitcher that they have pulled off the junk heap and tried to make something happen. Last year they tried it. It didn't work out. This year they've tried it with Gavin Floyd. And Mark, he's done for at least three months, if not more, maybe the entire season. They just threw away $4 million on a guy that hasn't been able to pitch the last two years and now is not going to be able to pitch because he's got a stress fracture in the same elbow that he had in the same elbow a year ago. Same injury, same elbow. I don't know what the Indians were thinking as far as Gavin Floyd was concerned. I wonder if that's the kind of contract that is insured because, you know, it's it's pretty amazing that they would take that kind of risk with him. Uh, but, you know, that you, you roll the dice, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. 
Uh, more times than not, I think uh, major league teams are turning away from those risks and, and going after guys that have a healthy arm. Well, I certainly wish that uh, Chris Antonetti would have done that with Gavin Floyd. I didn't like the signing at the time. The thing that I really didn't like about the signing, Mark, was the fact that they anointed him the number four starter before training camp ever began. That was a Chris Antonetti thing. That was not Francona. Antonetti at the press conference signing Floyd said that Gavin Floyd was the number four starter for this ball club. Well, how in the world do you make when pitching is your strength? That's the thing that everybody is hanging their hat on with this Indians ball club is their pitching staff. So how when you're the general manager, how are you so out of touch with a signee that you just made, especially in Gavin Floyd, that has not pitched for the last two years, and make him your number four starter on the strong part of your team? I just didn't understand it at the time, and now it just proves out that Chris Antonetti was, again, way off the wall in what he said in a press conference. You know, so many of the the decisions made by teams, uh, you're rolling dice one way or the other. And when it works out, you look like a genius and you're general manager of the year. And when it doesn't, you're a a dope. And it is, to me, that, that would be the most frustrating thing, is making out your roster and weighing money against talent. And, you know, I've talked about this before with, with Lindor as an example. Are you going to weigh making out your roster to save money in two years because of arbitration? Or are you going to play the kid because he's the best shortstop on your team? It's the same with the injuries and, and, and taking chances and rolling dice. I, I think you're, you're going to be open to second-guessing no matter what. And to me, that's the, that's the biggest challenge of a – General manager, I don't think it is making the blockbuster trade because they just don't happen that often. It's taking that pile of money you got and, and making a decision. Are you going to have a team that's going to be competitive or are you going to have a team that makes some money? Because that's what it boils down to. Well, when you look at Lindor right now, Mark, he is making it extremely difficult for them to cut him and send him back down to the minor leagues. Right now, what he is doing is he's batting 300. He's got six hits and 20 at-bats, two of them doubles, one triple. As far as fielding is concerned, he's had 16 chances so far this spring over the first two and a half, three weeks. No errors. He's committed no errors. He's not even come close to committing an error. He's shown more range than Ramirez has at shortstop. He's got 10 assists and six putouts alone. For himself, This kid is making it almost impossible for the Indians to send him down. And yet, I don't think he's got a shot at making this ball club. I think he starts out the year in Columbus. Well, what do you think about that? It, you've seen him play. You know what you had last year at shortstop. If you were the GM, what would you do? I'd keep him. I'd, I'd keep him up. I would make him my starting shortstop. And, and I would I would play the two-month game. That in April and May, I'm going to watch this kid. I'm going to see what he can do. He's going to play every day. I'm going to see what he can do. And if he shows that he is going to be able to handle it, I'm going to keep him there. But if he shows that maybe he needs some time to go back down to the minors, then I would send him down. And you've always got Ramirez to come back up and handle the shortstop position. That's exactly how I would handle it. But I know the Indians. I've watched their modus operandi over the last 20 years, and especially the last five or six years under Chris Antonetti in the last 20 years under Mark Shapiro. And I can tell you, Mark, that what they're going to do is they are going to send this kid down for one reason and one reason only. They want to keep him arbitration ineligible. They will say to the press when they do this that they want to get him more seasoning at the AAA level because he only played 30 games down there last year. But in all honesty... Their real reason, if they're going to look themselves in the mirror, is they want to make sure that this kid is not arbitration eligible for one more year. Well, on a negative note with the Reds, uh, I seldom pick on a player because I know the guys are out there busting their butt and they, they you know, they're trying and sometimes they screw up and sometimes they don't. I, I, I hope I'm wrong. But it appears to me that the Reds are going to be keeping J.J. Hoover in their bullpen. 
Oh, boy. I know. J.J. Hoover last year won one game and lost 10 or 11. I don't know how many. But he lost a bunch. And he, I've never seen a pitcher at the major league level survive a season with the way he threw. Now, the Reds have some pretty good young studs they can bring into that bullpen. But right now, it is, it is, everybody's saying that Hoover is going to make it. And he's been pounded this year. And he throws a breaking ball, Dave, that is stays belt high. He has a good fastball. He'll strike a lot of guys out. But it's like going to the batting cages. It's right down the middle. And major league hitters will pound this guy into dust. And yet, he is going to make this roster. And this is going to be my cause for the year, if he does. Uh, what decisions are this team making about this team? Because if he's on the roster... And he has a year like he had last year. Last year, they are waving the white flag now. Well, Mark, you know I've watched I've watched Hoover pitch, not as much as you have, but I've seen him. And I go by the old axiom: even a blind squirrel finds a nut. Even a major league pitcher, as bad as he is, is going to get an out every once in a while. And I'll tell you what: when it comes time that J.J. Hoover needs an out, he just doesn't get it. And more than likely, when he needs an out. The ball is not going to end up in the catcher's glove. It's going to end up in the left field stands. You know, one of the most amazing statistics I've ever heard about baseball is that during batting practice before the game, very few players even hit 400. Now think about that for a minute. The ball is coming right down the middle at batting practice speed, and the hitters still can't put the ball in play at a, at a 400 or plus clip. That means they're hitting line drives at people, they're hitting fly balls, or they're fouling pitches off, or whatever. That's just the nature of the physics of baseball. And when you have a pitcher who gets absolutely lit up time and time and time again, I don't understand the patience that the Reds had last year with him, and it's happened before. I don't know if it's because of contracts or they just have absolutely nobody down there in the bullpen that can, they can do anything more. So I'm going to keep my eye on Hoover this year. He's going to be my cause. Uh, a couple of years ago, you were all over the Cleveland's front office. Well, I'm going to be all over the, the manager and the general manager if Hoover has a year like he had last year. Well, I, I can't say that I blame you. You know, the one thing that I've been very, very happy with besides Francisco Lindor, is the fact that the players that I have seen for the Indians at the training camp level, it has opened my eyes to what this team has in the minor leagues. You know, for the last few years, Mark, I've told you, I didn't think that the Indians had much at the minor league level. I've got to say right now, I am extremely pleased with the players that they have at the minor league level. They've got a kid named Urshela that plays third base. He was out all last year with a knee injury. This kid looks outstanding, and he may be just about a year away from the major leagues. He'll probably start out the year in double-A, but he'll move up to Columbus very, very quickly. They've got another kid named Ramsey. This is Jamie Ramsey is his name. He's the guy that they got from Justin Masterson from St. Louis a year ago. And immediately when that trade was made, I called Bill Ivey from I-70 website, who covers the Cardinals exclusively, and I asked him, I said, what's the deal with this Ramsey kid? Well, at the time, the Cardinals had the log jam in the outfield, and he told me that even though they hated giving him up, they could see that there was absolutely no way he was going to make it to the major leagues. This kid can play right field, center field. He can even play a little bit of first base. He has done an outstanding job for the Indians. Now, he'll start out the year probably in AAA. They've got a couple of catchers down there, Mark Walters and Perez. Now, Perez will probably be their backup catcher this year. He played a little bit last year, but he's done an outstanding job in training camp. They've got some other kids. Hood is another one in the outfield. He's outstanding. Bradley Zimmer was their number one draft pick a year ago. They've given him a couple of token appearances at the plate, Mark. He's two for two in training camp games. Now, he's played mainly in B games and played with the minor leagues. I'm telling you, I'm seeing kids down in the minor leagues now, Mark, especially as far as hitters are concerned, that I think are going to be with this club in the next three or four years. And where I was three or four years ago compared to where I am now, 
I think the future is bright for the Indians, whereas a couple of years ago, three or four years ago when we first started this show, I thought that the future was far from bright in the minor leagues. So I'm extremely pleased with what's going on in the minor leagues for the Indians. Well, I think the Reds were probably in the same position a few years ago, and I I have to give them kudos for developing a, a, a group of young potential starting pitchers. they got some good arms down there in the minor leagues. What I'm not seeing on the red side are position players, guys that could hit 340, 350 in the minors, except Jesse Winker. He's the only guy that, and, and if he doesn't make it, I think the Reds are, are in deep trouble because as position players go, he's by far uh, their, their most touted talent. Uh, but we'll see what happens with the, with the rest of the team. But in terms of the pitching, I think they're in pretty good stead right now. And you have to wonder if teams go into the development of their rosters looking. I've always wondered, do you look for the best player or do you look for where you are weak? knowing that it's going to take five years, maybe maybe more, to develop. You know, an 18-year-old kid may not be ready for the big leagues for four, five, even six years. So, again, th- that decision by the staff and by the manager, the scouting department, to find those young players is by far, I think, the most challenging one they have. I remember, I think it was like seven or eight years ago, um, Eric Wedge was still the manager of the Indians. And they had a very difficult decision. The Indians didn't think it was difficult, but the fans thought it was difficult. Between who to keep at shortstop, Brandon Phillips or another guy. And that other guy, to be honest, I cannot even remember his name because he's not in Major League Baseball (coughs) any longer. And, of course, the Indians, as they normally do, they decided to cut Brandon Phillips. And the reason why? Because he couldn't get along. There was a personality conflict between him and and Eric Wedge. Now, what has happened with Brandon Phillips since then? You seem to think that he's the best defensive second baseman ever in Major League Baseball. But in all honesty, Mark, he's been a model citizen in Cincinnati. He's barely gotten into any trouble, as the Reds, as the Reds would attest. And the Indians would have said probably eight or nine years ago, Mark, that that would have been, there's absolutely no way that Brandon Phillips would go this far in his career without any major altercations. Well, I think it's a matter of maturity. Finally, a guy like Brandon Phillips, when he came to Cincinnati, I think he knew that he wasn't going to get a lot of other chances. And it wasn't because of lack of talent. Uh, He was just a pain in the butt to work with. And he alienated himself from the coaching staff and from the other players on the Indians roster. But you're right. When he came to Cincinnati, that first year, I remember early in the year, he got up. He didn't even start at the beginning of the year. But he he came in maybe mid-April, last week in April. And he started pounding the ball and making plays at second base that I had <laughs> I didn't think was possible. And the reason he was so good and is so good is he is a shortstop. And he was a good shortstop in the Cleveland Indian organization. And when he came when he, when he came actually he came up with Montreal, I believe, and he was an outstanding shortstop that moved to second base and he's got a cannon for an arm. So he makes plays behind the bag at second base and throws the guy out by three, you know, by three steps. And I had not seen that before. A lot of second basemen will get a ball behind second, and you know they throw a, a lollipop over the first because even Joe Morgan did that. Morgan did not have a good arm, mm-hmm. but he was very quick. He was quick to the ball, quick on the double play. But but I've never seen anybody like Phillips, who had the athleticism and the power. I mean, don't forget this guy hit thirty home runs one year at shortstop and a 30-30 guy that that's <laughs> that's not done a lot with second baseman so you're right he he turned the page in his career and uh i think last year uh he got hurt and it really hurt the team because uh the reds just didn't have any power in that lineup and his his absence is i think overlooked a great deal do you remember the trade that the indians got with him i don't <clears throat> it, it's- bartolo cologne Went to Montreal. Oh, yeah, that one. For, yeah. for a trio of players, the Indians got in return from Montreal not only Phillips, Grady Sizemore, and Cliff Lee. Yeah, I remember that deal. I, I don't remember the deal that sent him to the Reds. Oh, it was just a straight, they, they cut him and the Reds picked him up. Oh, that's right. That's why I didn't remember it. Yeah, that, that deal with 
for Bartolo Colon was one of the great, great deals of all time. And, uh, you know, Grady Sizemore, I think, is a sad, sad story what happened to the guy physically. I know he made a comeback last year. Was it with the Cardinals he came back or the Phillies? Uh, Sizemore with the Red Sox oh, the and Red then Sox. moved over to the Cardinals. That's right. I knew he ended up with the Cardinals. But um, that, that guy, when he first came up, I don't know what you thought about him. I thought that guy was one of the most exciting, talented players to come along in a long time. And I thought he was going to be around for a long time, but injuries just just cut him down. Yeah, the the last few years of his his career, the injuries really got to him. But as far as the the Reds are concerned, I want to bring up three players as far as the Reds are concerned, Mark here tonight. And you brought up two of them earlier, Zach Cozart and Jay Bruce. You know, you said you know if Cozart can't hit uh, two ten. Uh, again this year, and Jay Bruce was going to have to get off to it. And I know we don't like to put a lot of stock and stats as far as spring training is concerned, but let's talk about those two right off the bat. Cozart right now, as I looked at the stats earlier today, 5 of 16 at the plate so far in spring training. He's batting 313. You said last week that you thought he has taken a different approach to the plate. The only thing, I've seen him hit three or four times this year, then I heard it, uh, I read it on, on the internet, that he is trying to go to the opposite field. And what happened with Zach Cozart, I think, two years ago, he hit double-figure home runs. And that, I think he started, he got pull-happy, and pitchers started gassing him on the inside. He couldn't pull the trigger. And rather than try to go to right field, move the hitter along, uh, keep the inning going, he tried to pull the ball. Now, if he does it again this year, I, I think you know he's a guy that could end up a perennial substitute or a role player. But he, but he can't start at the major league level hitting 210. He, and the other thing he hasn't done, which he did in the minors, was steal. He thought he stole 30 bases one year in the minors, and two years ago with Dusty Baker, or th- was it three years ago? I guess no, two years ago, uh, he didn't he didn't attempt to steal, and. Last year, I think he stole a half a dozen bases, but he's got decent speed. But if again, you can't have that many holes in your lineup, unless, unless you have a team that has a two seventy five team batting average is going to hit two hundred and twenty home runs and and score a lot of runs without the shortstop, then you can afford it. Not with the Reds lineup. Well, speed kills, and if you recall, the big red machine back in the seventies was initially built upon speed. That's the reason they got Joe Morgan. They wanted to slide Ken Griffey Jun- Ken Griffey into that lineup also and so that they could have speed at the top of that lineup. And once they got speed, Mark, that increased the hitting for that team, not because they were so much so talented, which they were, but because those hitters started getting fastballs to keep the uh, those runners, Morgan and Griffey, from stealing bases. Yeah, you mentioned that team and, and- you know, history tells us that that clearly was one of the greatest teams of all time. At the time, you didn't you didn't know what was going to be happening, and the Reds fans were in an uproar, an uproar on that trade when they got Morgan because they gave up Jimmy Stewart, they gave up Lee May, uh, to two really uh, you know favorite Reds players, uh, and they they got guys that for the most part had not distinguished themselves yet. Uh, but an unheralded guy they got in that deal was Dennis Menke. He, he really solidified the infield for the team, and he had played for Milwaukee for a number of years before moving to, to, to Houston. Uh, but he, he was a guy who came along in that deal that a lot of people forgot about. Yeah, ab- yeah, absolutely. He did solidify that part of the infield. The other guy I wanted to bring up was Jay Bruce. Now, in training camp so far, he is – Four of thirteen from the plate, he's batting three oh eight. So what is he doing differently? Or is it just the fact that he's seeing mainly fastballs? I think it's the latter. Uh, I, I've not uh, Jay Bruce had a pretty good spring last year too, and he's had good springs. But Jay Bruce is the kind of guy who will hit two oh eight, two twelve, two fifteen for three months and then hit five eighty. And it skews his numbers. <clears throat> He'll drive in 30 runs in a month, and, you know, it looks like he's having a great year, but he is, you know, he leaves so many runners on base, doesn't move them along, doesn't go to left field, 
and I am a huge J. Bruce fan. When he came up, I was very excited about it. But either he is just too thick-headed to take suggestions, or he, he doesn't have the ability to make adjustments. And if you can't make adjustments in this league, you're going you're gonna to flame out. And I hope that's not happening to Jay Bruce. But you hit 216, 218 again this year, and people are going to start using the term flame out uh, as it relates to Jay Bruce. Do they need Jay Bruce back to the 2010-2011 circa Jay Bruce in order to be a successful team this year? I think he is the most important cog in that lineup. I really do. Because if he's a guy that you're not afraid of, then you're, you're going to go right after him, and, and you're going to avoid whoever is before him or after him. You know, it, people say you need somebody to, you know, protect the runner but or protect the hitter. But, you know, if you got Jay Bruce hitting in front of you, I mean, I'm sorry, you have Jay Bruce hitting behind Joey Votto, well, if I'm a pitcher and I got an IQ of above 20, uh, I'm, I'm going to pass on Joey Votto and go right to Jay Bruce. And if you you have a good hitter behind Jay Bruce, I'm going to go after Jay Bruce <laughs> and not pitch to that good hitter coming up next. So he's when you're hitting, he's got to hit third, fourth, or fifth in that lineup. If he's hitting sixth, seventh, or eighth, you know you're in trouble because he's not producing. And I think he's the most important guy on that team. And fortunately. They could, if they wanted to, they could hit Jay Bruce as low as seventh in that lineup, which is unthinkable four or five years ago. Because you got Mezzarocco and you got Frazier and you you now have Marv Marv um the new guy they got from the Phillies, his name just Oh Marlon Bird. Marlon Bird. Uh just blew out of my mind. Um so they've got some guys they can put at the top of that lineup and, and don't forget Brandon Phillips. You know, they have a lot of guys who who could deliver, but you cannot waste a half a year seeing if Jay Bruce is going to have one of those months that's going to make his year. Right. Now, another another person that I wanted to bring up uh, as far as the Reds are concerned is Brendan Bosch. Brendan Bosch, to me, was was a good player with Detroit. Not Not a great player, but a good player with Detroit when he was with them in right field. Now the Reds have him. With Detroit in 2010, 11, and 12, he averaged 14 homers and 65 RBIs. And the only reason he wasn't allowed to develop with the Tigers was they went out that year and and signed Torrey Hunter. And they they couldn't pass him up, so they went out and got Torrey Hunter to play right field. But Bosch so far in the spring mark, 9 of 21 at-bats for the Reds with two homers and five RBIs. What are the? T- I, I think he's got an excellent chance not only of making this team, but if Marlon Byrd gets off to a slow start, or even Jay Bruce gets off to a slow start, he might be able to move into one of those corner outfield spots. You know, you and I have been working together way too long. Uh, I had him down. <laughs> I had him down next on my notes to talk about because I mean, this if you, for you fans who have not seen him, this guy's a physical specimen. He's about six four, weighs about two twenty five, and he looks like a tight end. He's a big dude. Good speed, good bat cover, uh, plate coverage, good bat speed. Uh, and in the fact that now Bourgeois is going to be out for six weeks with a, a shoulder injury, uh, I think this guy's made the team. I think it was between those two. And the Reds may have opted for Bourgeois because of defense. But they, they've worked out Bosch in right field and at first base. He hadn't played it for a while, but he, I, apparently he's holding his own down there. And when, when I heard that trade... You know, nobody said much about that, Dave, and I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, you saw him play in the American League, and I looked this guy up, and he played for the Angels too. Mm-hmm. He's he's got some he's got some power, some big time power. And if you if you need a bat off the bench, or if Jay Bruce isn't hitting, yeah, yeah, I, I think he's a he's a great pickup. And uh, I don't know how old he is. I think he's in his late. He's thirty. He's thirty. Okay, I was going to say twenty eight, twenty nine, but thirty years old. You know, he's still in his prime, and this guy has potential to hit 25, 30 home runs if he has a chance to play. Well, Mark, you you brought up physical specimen. He reminds me in right field of a young Paul O'Neill. Yeah, yeah. I saw that too, and 
I saw him hit a home run. I guess it was his first career home run, and this was a few years ago. And he he did remind me of Paul O'Neill. He's got kind of uh, he's got a little hitch in his swing, but you can tell he's a, he's a real good athlete. He looks like he played football at, at some point. He's a big enough guy to do that. I don't know what he's like defensively. Uh, where Jay- he's a good defensive outfielder. He's not he's not great, but he's a good defensive outfielder. Well, that's where Jay Bruce is an asset to the Reds. He's got a great arm. I think he's one of the best right fielders in the league. But again, with an injury, hey, I wouldn't mind putting him, um, Brandon Bosch, anywhere in that lineup. I think he can play first and and certainly the two corner outfield positions. Well, with this injury to Bourgeois, what's that going to do as far as Billy Hamilton is concerned? Is he going to have to take the the yeoman's load in center field now and, and play 58 out of 60 ball games out there because they don't have a replacement for him in center? Well, I think he was probably going to do that anyway. Uh, I don't see Bourgeois that was going to start that much in center field. Uh, you know, Jay Bruce has played center field too and, and, and not played it bit poorly, actually. Uh, but again, when you, you, you just brought up the weakness of the Reds. They don't have a deep position roster. They don't have guys who could come in and take over in center field. Or what what happens if Brandon Phillips goes down? They, they they have capable guys, but not you know superior talent in the minor leagues knocking on the door like the Cubs do. You know the Cubs just have a tremendous uh, backlog of talent. Uh, I don't know what their pitching is like, but boy, from a position perspective, that team is loaded. And this is where I mentioned it last week. If this team gets off to a poor start, you're going to see Johnny Cueto traded. I, I, I just don't see any other option. And if you could pick up, you know, a, a, some good minor league position players, I think you'd do it. But we'll see what happens. I think that decision will, will be made by May fifteenth. This team's, you know, five, six, seven games below five hundred. Johnny Cueto is gone. Well, a couple of players that I wanted to bring up as far as the Indians were concerned, veteran players, and the reason I want to bring them up is because of the injury problems that they sustained a year ago. First of all is Brandon Moss. Moss is coming off that hip surgery, Mark, and before he had the hip surgery, he was on pace last year with Oakland to hit 30 homers again. He's one of the unsung power hitters in the game today, and the Indians basically picked him up for a song because of that hip injury. But the Indians brought him along slowly, got him through therapy, and in the short time that he has played over the last week, he's three for six from the plate with two home runs. So I'm very happy with what Brandon Moss has done out in Arizona. The other guy that I'm interested in seeing what he does right now is Michael Bourne, because Bourne is a key, no matter what you think, to what this team can do during the year. They need him at leadoff, and they need him in center field. And right now... Those hamstring injuries that plagued him over the last couple of years, so far they look like he may be over those injuries. He's 8 of 16 from the plate. He's got a home run. He's got three walks, which is instrumental for Bourne from that leadoff spot. And now he's only been caught. He's only tried stealing once, and he's been caught once. But I think they're trying to take it easy with him as far as trying to steal bases in spring training. So I'm very, very happy with what is going on with the Indians as far as Michael Bourne and Brandon Moss are concerned. So those are two key ingredients on this team, especially if Swisher is not going to start the season. What is your take? You mentioned uh, his propensity to steal and the ability to steal. You know, Moneyball dictates that you don't steal, that it's uh, you, you waste too many outs and it, it doesn't help and, and all that stuff. Uh, and the point in... in the point of that is Billy Hamilton, who got thrown out, I think, 27 times last year. I mean, that's that's a lot of times to be thrown out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and clearly he was a rookie and, and, and hadn't read pitchers that well. But, you know, I think with the, the advent of, let me say it this way, post-steroids, uh, I see teams gravitating back towards speed, unlike they were doing it five, ten years ago years ago where everything was a three-run home run. And I, I tend to think that's a more exciting way to, to score, but um, it may be that the, the teams have no choice. They don't have the power, and they're going to have to go back to the speed guys, speed and pitching. 
I think the thing that the Indians are going to rely upon Michael Bourne this year is maybe just getting a token steal every now and then to to open up that hole between first and second for whomever they're going to have batting second this year. But I think the big thing that they need out of Michael Bourne is going from first to third on a base hit. That's something that the Indians didn't have a lot of last year. They played just base to base, and it it would take them three hits to get a base hit rather than just a couple of hits uh, to get a run. I mean, not a base hit, but three hits to get a run compared to a couple of hits to get a run. And I think that's what they need out of Michael Bourne this year. That and good defense in center field. That way they can leave Brantley in left. Brantley, to me, is an outstanding center fielder. If you put him there and play him every day, you've got a gold glove center fielder, Michael Brantley. Same as you do with Michael Bourne. But if you've got those two guys by side, Mark, Boy, that's going to help out your defense a tremendous amount and help out your pitching staff. Oh, sure. I mean, that's, again, we talked about this last week, and I I certainly haven't seen anything, nor have I read anything, that would indicate the Indians are not uh, one of the top two teams in the Central. I I think that they are. And if they have that speed, if they, they have guys who can get on base, but you've mentioned this for two years now, I think the key to the Indians is going to be their defense. If they make another 105 or 110 errors like they did last year, uh, this team can't win. You can't win with that kind of defense. You, it puts too much pressure on your on your pitchers and really too much pressure on your hitters because they have to score a lot more runs. So I, I think you guys, from what I understand, what I can see, you know it better than I do, they've got solid offensive talent and they've got very solid pitching talent. Now, can they catch the ball? I, I, I don't know. That's going to be the key. That is really going to be the key for the Indians this year. Where the Reds' key is their offense, are they going to be able to score enough runs? I think the Indians' key is going to be defense this year, and can they field the ball? You know, there's some other things around Major League Baseball, Mark, that I want to bring up as we wind down this week's Ohio Baseball Weekly Show, and one of them is a sad note. Uh, Al Rosen died on Saturday at the age of 91 now, A lot of people remember Al Rosen as a key member of the New York Yankees and Chicago White Sox front office staff, but what a lot of people don't realize, he was the last living member of the last Cleveland Indian World Championship team in 1948. Al Rosen could hit. He was a good hitter. and uh, He's one of those guys... That had been around baseball. I think was he ninety one when he died. I think it was ninety one. Yes, ninety one. Uh, he had been around in just about every capacity in baseball, as a player, a manager, a coach, a scout, a front office, and he did them all well. And he was an intelligent guy. I remember hearing him speak several times. And you know, it's you know when you reach ninety one and you've done what you wanted to do in life, I think you win. You've won the game. So congratulations, Al. Uh, good job. And uh, I, I wish more people had the ability and the talent to and the longevity to achieve what he did over a, a really a very outstanding career. Absolutely. You know, another thing I wanted to bring up, Dontrell Willis. Boy, do you remember that name? Oh, yeah. He retired, finally. He said he's done. He was trying to come back with the Milwaukee Brewers, and he's decided to hang them up. Boy, you talk about... A guy that, boy, had an up-and-down baseball career. His first five years were just uh, amazing, and then he just flamed out almost at the age of 27 and and really bounced around between the Tigers and the Reds and the Brewers, and finally he decided just earlier this past week that he was going to hang them up, Mark. A couple things about that, Dave. Number one, I think he could have elongated his career by going to the outfield. That guy was a great hitter. I mean, he was a major league hitter. Tremendous bat speed, good speed, and I think he was a good enough, good enough outfield. He could have played left field and hit. I think he would have been a 270, 280 hitter. Uh, but he leads me to another interesting conversation I heard on MLB, and it re- revolved the injuries to pitchers. And Mike Schmidt, a guy who knows pitching pretty well because he hit a lot of it, he had a very, very interesting comment about why pitchers seem to be getting injured more and more frequently now. And he says back in his day, and 
back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, you had guys like Robin Roberts and, and, and pitchers of that ilk, Fergie Jen, Jenkins and all these guys, they were pitching 300 innings every year. And the reason was they threw all fastballs. Their fastballs moved, but they, they didn't throw the cutter. And Mike said that you know he thinks the, the biggest cause of injury to pitchers is not the slider, but it's the changeup. Because you got to throw it with fastball speed, but you're throwing it. And uh, any of you fans out there, take a baseball and throw it hard like you would hold a fastball with your two fingers, your your index finger and your middle finger over the, the seams, four seam or two seam. Throw it hard, and it doesn't hurt your arm. Throw a change. Throw the same pitch with your middle finger and your ring finger. That's how you hold a circle change. It hurts because you're putting a lot of pressure on your arm with that changeup. And I used to notice that when I pitched. I, I never got, I got never got my arm sore by throwing fastballs. And that's what those guys did back in the, in the day. Plus, they pitched through a lot of pain. They they had sore arms, but my gosh, the, the, none of those guys threw the cutter. They didn't throw the change like they, they are now. They didn't throw the slider as much. And those pitches, according to Mike Schmidt, and I think he knows, they have probably caused more arm injuries than anything in, in the last 25 years to pitchers. Well, you know what I heard, and I forget who it was said this just a couple of weeks ago, and I was going to bring it up on last week's show and, and didn't get the opportunity to, but since you've opened up this can of worms, I'll go ahead and bring it up. Um, there are not many split-finger fastball pitchers anymore in baseball. They they were very, very prevalent in the late 80s and throughout the 90s, but in the 2000s, they have sort of dwindled away, and there are not many split-finger fastball pitchers anymore. Is that because of the arm injuries? Yes, and one guy, you know, Bruce Suter, that's how he made his living throwing the split. Mm-hmm. And and one guy for the Reds who does throw it is Homer Bailey. And I don't know if it's caused his injuries or not, but he does throw it. And, you know, the I used to think that the changeup would not cause injury, yeah, but it does. The, the, I guess the safest pitch to throw if you're a pitcher is the knuckleball. That you, <laughs> because you're not you're not putting any strain on it. In fact, you no, you're not. And if you can control it, it it's it's a pitch you could stay around for 50 years and pitch because nobody can hit it. Uh, but it, you know these the, the guys that that Mike was talking about, Mike Schmidt, uh, the guys who, who Seaver and and Robin Roberts and all these guys, uh, Jim Palmer. All the guys, they, they threw a lot of fastballs. And the, the Atlanta Braves, they were you know, just known for their pitching. They trained their pitchers to pitch every day. They threw every day. And that's not the way it's done now. The, pitcher, the pitchers are babied, and, and, and they're using weights. They're very, very strong. And what they really do, they get so strong, they break stuff. You know, that you get so much power and torque behind a pitch, and it may not hurt your arm, but it's going to kill your shoulder, or it's going to hurt your elbow. Something's going to break, and that's what's what's been happening. And if you didn't have Tommy John today, Dave, guess how many pitchers wouldn't be pitching without Tommy John? Oh, absolutely, And, and you bring that up too, and that brings up you, Darvish, of the Rangers. He's out for the year now because... Of the Tommy John surgery. And I'm surprised, you know, he had this elbow problem back in September. And they decided to wait and let him rest it throughout the winter and bring him into (coughs) spring training this year. And he didn't even get but one inning under his belt in the first spring training game, Mark. And he complained of elbow discomfort. They took him in, and now he's got to undergo Tommy John surgery. So, yeah, I mean, these pitchers... It's almost like they they pitch a couple of years and they undergo Tommy John. They're out for a year and then they're back. Not only are they back, they're back better than ever because the, the the ligament they they put in there is better than the ligament they were born with, and that's that's a proven medical fact. Now, what's the difference in that? In <laughs> I know what you're going to bring up and steroids. What's the difference? Tell me, David, because I know you hate steroids, but you are a supporter of surgery 
It's a medical procedure, Mark. It's something that the doctors have prescribed. They have said that he needs. Now, if if the doctor prescribes steroids, I've got absolutely no problem with it. For example, who the, the and I don't want to jump sports here, but there was a football player for the Indianapolis Colts that was taking a prescribed drug from that was prescribed by his doctor to increase fertility because his wife and him were having trouble having kids and the doctor prescribed a steroid to him so that they could have a child and the NFL came in and said that that was a banned substance and they suspended him for four games I felt that was absolutely atrocious if a doctor comes out and says you need this and gives you a prescription for it then I think it's fine then why did players get in trouble using steroids because they didn't have a doctor prescribing it. No. They had guys like Bosch no, that but, was but steroids, that giving it to them. Steroids were not illegal. They were not illegal. You were allowed to use them. And guys catch all this grief for using something that was not banned at the time. That's what I... The inconsistencies of the application of the laws, I think, is preposterous. Oh, you'll have no problem with me there. And the other fact is... We don't know who wasn't caught. You know other guys were using it. True. And so they, they're making these subjective determinations that because Barry Bonds, his head went to a you know a size 11, uh, he was on steroids, and he, and he probably was. But he wasn't on steroids his whole career. No. And, and, if you, and I don't have a problem with putting Barry Bonds in the Hall of Fame. I do have a problem with his numbers at the end of his career, but like you said, you're absolutely right. Before he he was alleged to have taken steroids, and we've got to say that because nobody has ever proven that he he had taken them. Bingo! Why isn't he in the Hall of Fame? First of all, he's not eligible well, you, yet. <laughs> you know what I'm getting at. I mean, he, he won't get in on the first ballot. No, he won't. And, and the guy should be in the Hall of Fame. Because many of the pitchers he faced and, and hit 500-foot home runs, they were on steroids, too. And we can't prove it, but we can't prove he was on it. So these writers who are making these judgments over players, it drives me insane that they're doing it just because they didn't like a player, because he, he wasn't a good interview. And You're I preaching to the choir as far as the Baseball Writers Association of America. Why they are the sole judge and jury to put somebody into the Hall of Fame astounds me. The guys who know about the players are the players. And I think they ought to be the the arbiters of, of the talent, at least. Or you could have managers do it. Or, or somebody who really knows the ins and outs of the game. Half these, half these writers, quote-unquote, They've never played the game. They, they, they report the game, but they don't know the game. And there's a big difference. And this, this is one of my pet peeves about Major League Baseball, and I wish the new commissioner would do something about it. Well, maybe he will. Let's move on to a very, very quick subject here. Have you ever had pink eye? <laughs> yeah, I think I did as a kid, and I saw, <laughs> was it, was it uh, one of the teams that are not going to? Milwaukee Brewers. Brewers, they can't high-five anymore. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, they're not allowed to high-five at all because there is an epidemic of pink eye going through the Brewers, and that's the way that it is transmitted from hand-to-hand contact. And they are endorsing all the players. They've got the the soap products in the dugouts and everything that when they come back from the plate or whatever they do, they take their hands out of their gloves. They want them to wash their hands with the soap, and it, it has just become a comedy. Now, they're not saying that they will allow them to go ahead and give high fives once this epidemic is over. But at least for the next week, you will not see the Milwaukee Brewers give a fist bump or a high five anywhere on the field. Well, Dave, I'll bet, knowing Major League ball players as I do, there are things going around a clubhouse that are a lot worse than pink eye that we're never going to hear about. <laughs> Pro- probably, probably not. Hey, as far as the Reds are concerned this week, Mark, they're going to play the A's twice, the White Sox, Rangers, and Giants this week. The Indians are going to be playing the Reds on Tuesday. So the Reds and Indians play on Tuesday again at Goodyear. Then the Indians will finish up the week playing the Royals, Mariners, the Angels, and Rockies. 
this week in Arizona. As we head into this third and fourth week of spring training camp, Mark, what are the managers and the players actually looking to accomplish in this this time frame of training camp? Well, it doesn't get really serious until the last uh, 10 days, two weeks of the season. So the season opens a week from tomorrow for the Reds and Indians, uh, at least the Reds. And you're, you're going to continue to see the minor leaguers play the rest of this week. But you get next week at this time, you're going to start seeing Votto and Bruce and, and, and the regular guys get in there, get their swings down. The pitchers will be stretched out. And I think it'll be the same thing for the Indians. Uh, the first two or three weeks of spring training doesn't really mean a lot other than conditioning and hoping nobody gets hurt. But uh, you get down the last 10 days, and then you start paying attention. Well, we'll see what happens as far as the Reds and the Indians are concerned. Mark, it's been a pleasure. We'll see you again next Monday night. All right, Dave. Have a good one. That's going to do it for our Ohio Baseball Weekly Show for this week. Thanks for joining us here tonight. Our thanks to Mark Donahue and our thanks especially to you tonight for listening. Don't forget that we will be back with you next Monday night at 9 o'clock here on the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Until then, for Mark Donahue, I'm Dave Mitchell. Have a good week, everybody. The Wiz Kids had won it. Bobby Thompson had done it. And Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born. Marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball. Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially with.